Gail pointed out to us this morning, Jesus was a busy guy. Didn't we sing a song in Sunday school that said something about Jesus went about doing good? And he certainly did. You know, on, on many occasions in his earthly ministry, Jesus sought out broken, messed up, diseased men and women, and he healed them. People that we might call invalids. Sometimes Jesus' healing was painful because it required people to face, face the truth about themselves that people don't like to face. And Jesus didn't always do things the way people expected Him to, including healing. Um, I think it's interesting what Jesus uh, did at times. And it wasn't always the same. Remember... Um, Remember the man that he Jesus spit and made mud and put on his eyes? And we think, ooh. But you need to understand, for the Jews, that made a lot of sense. Because they thought there was healing power in the saliva or the spit of the rabbis, which should encourage you guys to sit much closer to the front of the sanctuary, I would think. <laughs> you're not there yet, huh? Well, I'm no rabbi either, so you're good. So Jesus didn't always do things the way people expected him to. He still doesn't. How often, am I in a cave? I still feel like, is it, okay. I feel like I'm in a cave here this morning. Um, I can hear myself echoing back here, but. Jesus didn't always do things the way people expected. Uh, and that included the way he healed. And how often in your lives have you prayed for some kind of answer? You've, you've come to God with a need and God has met that need in a way that you didn't really expect Him to. Yeah. I mean, I, all, I generally, when I go to God with a need, I have a plan about how He's going to fix it. <laughs> don't, don't we do that? Yeah. Come on, we know we do. We, we say, we're, we're praying, oh God, I need this, or please do this, and we've got in our minds an idea of how He should do that. And very often, he doesn't do it that way. Well, um, Jesus didn't always do what people expected when he healed, and he certainly did not do that in this case. See, in this case, as we read about this man today by the pool of Bethesda, who'd, who'd been disabled and invalid for 38 years, you know there's no mention of the man's faith. Or anyone else's, for that matter. He didn't ask Jesus to heal him. Many in the Scriptures did. They came to Jesus and asked for healing. But this man didn't. So no faith, no request. Now John tells us, as, as Gail pointed out earlier when he read the Scripture, that Jesus was in Jerusalem for one of the Jewish feasts. We're not told which one. That being said, um, the real issue in this account is not that Jesus was there for a feast, but that what he did took place on the Sabbath. And about the pool of Bethesda. <coughs> the belief there was that, again as in the footnote, an angel came from time to time and stirred the waters of the pool. 
When that happened, it was believed that the person who was able to get into the waters would be healed of their infirmity. It is implied from the invalid statement, the man that this story is about today, because he said, while I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. It's implied there that only one person was healed at a time. Now, scholars believe that the pool of Bethesda was fed by an underground stream, and because of that, from time to time, the pool bubbled up, so the waters would be stirred. So whether people got into the water at those times was... So the people who got into the water at those times, um, if they were actually healed, we really don't know. But there was apparently enough belief in the healing power of the pool that there was a crowd of disabled people gathered there waiting for the waters to be stirred or moved and hoping that they could be the first ones in with also the hope of being healed. So that's kind of the scene we have here. And so Jesus comes, and here's this man. It said... One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, we don't know how old the man was or how long he'd waited at the pool, but what we are told is how long he had suffered with this affliction. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Doesn't it seem strange that Jesus would ask a guy in this condition that question? It seems to us that naturally he wants to get well. But it gets even stranger. That might seem like a strange question, but the man's answer is even stranger. Because he doesn't really answer Jesus' question. Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. That's kind of what was going on here. Now, you think about the question Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? And it was a valid question in reality. Because there are people who, if given an opportunity, might actually choose to remain sick. See, Right now, they're free from some unpleasant responsibilities. And they get sympathy from others. And they can use their infirmity as a tool of manipulation. And they are generally free of the expectations one might have of a healthier person. So, I, I could see why Jesus, maybe he really didn't. Maybe the life he was living and the Lord expectations and the sympathy and all those, who knows? Maybe he really didn't want out of this situation. So when Jesus asked, do you want to get well? He seems to be saying, if I heal you, your life will change dramatically. You'll be expected to get a job and relate to people on a different basis, Are you ready for that change? Do you really want to get well? 
And as I read earlier, it says, Jesus, as he came into this place, there, one, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. One who was there. Well, we already know why he was there. Bible scholars describe the typical scene this way. Remember, he was hoping to get into the pool when the waters were stirred. So this is how Bible scholars describe that scene. So the water's been stirred. Suddenly, the waters of the pool begin to bubble and pandemonium breaks out. Every ailing person there is in competition with the rest of the multitude who are hoping for a healing. Can you imagine the pushing, shoving, tripping that takes place? What a pathetic sight to see people crawling, hopping, rolling, clawing their way to the water's edge. What chaos there would be. And I'd never thought about that before. But can you imagine? I, it doesn't say how many people were there. Just there was a great crowd there. And they all had an infirmity of some kind that they were hoping to get fixed. By the way, we don't know how often this thing bubbled up. We don't. So I don't know how long people had to wait in between bubblings to try and get into the water. But when it happened, you can just imagine the scene. So, what chaos. And, and, and the, the, the commentator here says, and even if one person was healed would not be the most disabled person because the one with the least disability would probably be the most likely to reach the pool first. So if this man was paralyzed, unable to walk in some way, there were probably others around that pool with some sort of infirmity who were a little better off than him, who would have beat him to the water every time. And so the curious thing about this whole incident is why among, among all those gathered there at the pool, Jesus would choose to focus on this man. Now, it is possible, the scripture doesn't say, but it is possible that Jesus healed others on that day. For as John writes at the end of his book, chapter 21, verse 25, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would have been written. So, I, Jesus might have healed some others there that day. However, the only recorded healing is of the man in this account. Perhaps that's because there are some things we need to see in this particular event. So, what about this man? Well, first of all, he was paralyzed by hopelessness. I have no one to help me into the pool. He is blaming others for his situation, and because of that, he exemplifies a spirit of hopelessness. No one will help me. Can you imagine? Um, I don't know how that would have happened unless someone who was without infirmity just happened to be there at the right time and said, Come on, let's go. Because, again, not knowing how often the waters were stirred... Someone couldn't just stay with him there every day, all day long, just in case, to help him in. 
I have no one. He's blaming others for his situation and he feels hopeless. What happens when you're hopeless? You become paralyzed emotionally and spiritually. You quit trying. You quit believing. That's that which seemed possible at some point now seems impossible to you. Nothing will ever change, so you give up. Someone has said there are no hopeless situations. There are only people who have grown hopeless about them. He was also trapped by self-pity. Someone else always goes down ahead of me. So he blames his circumstances. He blames people. He blames circumstances. We had a pastor's wife who would have called him a navel gazer. This navel. My focus is on me. Pity poor me. The whole world's against me. See, he'd lost perspective on the situation. He was consumed with his own problem. Do you think that there might have been others there at the pool who had waited and waited, just as he had, only to miss their chance because others got into the pool before them? Oh, but nobody's as bad off as I am. Do you think there might have been others there that were as physically limited, limited as this man or even worse? And you know, it's not just physical infirmity that can paralyze and trap us. It's not just hopelessness. It's not just self-pity. Sometimes fear can paralyze us, can trap us. Can't it? And we've even, you, can, you can read about fears that people have, fears of even leaving their homes. Fears about what's going to happen in our world. You know, uh, you read the news these days and it just seems like we're having a little more conflict with Russia and what happened in Syria recently and I think a Russian airplane was shot down and oh my. And we can be trapped, we can be paralyzed by fear. Sometimes it can be through something like addiction. You know, addiction by definition is something that has control of your life. If it didn't, you could just give it up, right? And you know, um, when we talk about addictions, especially those things like um, chemical addictions, we have a tendency to say, well, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and, and those things do damage to your body, and that's why you need to get rid of those things. That sounds pretty good. I wouldn't disagree with that, but here is what I, here's what I believe is the greater issue there. If addiction, by definition, is something that has control over you, that's a place where God doesn't. Do you think it's important to Him that He have control in that area of your life? I do. And listen, when we're controlled by an addiction, we're paralyzed in many ways. We're trapped. And that's what I love about Celebrate Recovery. Unforgiveness. I remember... Uh, a. Uh, we had a guest speaker when I was pastoring in Eastern Oregon, did a whole 
revival series for a week on, on forgiveness. And he said this, and I'll never forget it. The thickest walls of any prison are the walls of unforgiveness, and the person inside those walls is you. Not the person you're not forgiving, it's you. Unforgiveness is a trap. You're paralyzed by it. And until God can do work in your life to allow you to forgive others, you're still going to be in the walls of that prison of unforgiveness. And folks, we will never be set free until we quit blaming others and quit blaming our circumstances. It is said that King William of Potsdam once paid a royal visit to a prison. Every prisoner brought before him claimed to be innocent and begged for a pardon, except for one man who admitted his guilt. King William told the warden, get this guilty man out of the prison before he corrupts all these innocent men. And the man was set free. You know, we, we have a difficult time saying it's my fault. We blame heredity, environment, circumstances, everything except ourselves. Yet what the Lord wants is for us to accept responsibility for our own behavior. Oh, it's convenient when it's someone else's fault, or so we say, or when we can blame our circumstances, But all that is, when it boils down, is refusal to face the truth about ourselves. And that's called denial. And as they say in Celebrate Recovery, denial is not uh, a river in Egypt. And that's where this man was. But here's the good news. He was healed by Jesus. Jesus didn't say, don't worry. I'll help you get into the pool next time the water's stirred. In other words, I'll camp out with you here till." He didn't say that because... He didn't say that because Jesus isn't interested in endorsing our faulty solutions. He'd rather shoot straight with us just like he did with this man. Look, do you want to lie here the rest of your life? Or do you want to get well? If you want to get well, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And the man did, and he was healed instantly. Which raises a question, I think anyway. How come it doesn't happen that way all the time? Hey, that's what we all want, right? Oh God, I need, oh God, please do, oh God, touch me, make it happen now. I mean, how come it doesn't happen that way all the time? Here's this guy didn't ask to be healed, there's no mention of anybody's faith, and boom. What gives? I mean, how many others at the pool, were left unchanged that day. I mean, Jesus could have gone, you know, Shazam, and everybody would have been healed. Right? I'm not sure he would have said Shazam, but... (laughs) He could have said, be healed. (laughs) 
Christine Kane is a writer, speaker, and advocate for justice, especially among those enslaved in human trafficking. She, she wrote this, and I think it's, it's enlightening, and it's something that helps us maybe understand the question I've just asked. How come God doesn't just boom? She said, I had stage one thyroid cancer, which some people say is no big deal, usually people who have never had cancer. When I was lying on the operating table for two and a half hours on Tuesday and the doctor had a scalpel to my throat, it was a big deal to me. The cancer was in a very unusual place in my case, directly above my larynx. Of course, the enemy wanted to silence my voice. So she asked the question, why did I not get instantly healed? I don't know, but I know this, Jesus has healed me. God sometimes heals by a supernatural instantaneous miracle. Sometimes he heals by using doctors and medicine. Sometimes he takes us home and heals us there. Whichever way he chooses to do it is his business. He's God, remember that? He is God and I am not. He is sovereign and he will do whatever brings him the greatest glory. My job is to believe that he can and does heal today. God's job is to do the impossible. God responds to our faith. Impossible is where God starts. Miracles are what God does. I don't know what your challenge is today, but I do know that God knows. God sees. God cares. God can and will act on your behalf. God can make a way where there is no way. God is good. God does good. All things work together for good. For those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Your issue is important to God. And she says, use your faith. Jesus can heal cancer at any stage. Jesus can heal your back pain. Jesus can open closed wombs. Jesus can heal the chronic pain. Jesus can heal that headache. Jesus can mend your broken heart. Jesus can renew your tormented mind. Jesus can heal your wounded soul. Jesus can turn around that financial disaster. Jesus can reconcile that relationship. Jesus can help you forgive. Jesus can help you move past your past. Jesus can bring hope in the midst of your despair. Jesus can move that mountain. Jesus can meet that need. Jesus can save that person. Jesus can bring back your children. Jesus can open that door. Jesus can bring that partner into your life. After all, Jesus is, the miracle is in the miracle-working business. The Scripture says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. And he hasn't quit. She goes on to say, just because man cannot do it does not mean that God cannot do it. What is impossible with man is possible with God. With God, all things are possible and nothing is impossible. She says, I want to keep faith and hope alive in you. I want you to keep believing God for your miracle. I don't know what tomorrow will bring you, but neither do I know what it will bring for me. And she quotes again from the scripture, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is, even a vapor that, it is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. You are alive for today. You have hope for today. 
You have faith for today. Don't let fear, worry, unbelief, doubt, or anxiety about tomorrow rob from you what you have today. We're pretty good at doing just that thing too. We all have only today. Cancer is not terminal. Life is terminal. No one gets out of life alive. Don't fear death. Fear dying and having never lived. It was a good message for the man by the pool, wasn't it? Well, he was restored by obedience. I think there's great significance in Jesus' command for this man to take up his mat and walk. It was a call to obedience. This man was certainly aware of the laws that prohibited the carrying of, well, any number of things, including maps, on the Sabbath. But to be healed, he had to obey. Do you ever ask these questions like I do? I wonder what would have happened if he hadn't picked up his mat. I don't know. He did. I think picking up his mat was significant in another way. It was symbolic of leaving everything that the mat represented behind. Pick it up. Take it with you. That way you are leaving life at the pool behind. You can't go back to that map by the pool. And then we're told that Jesus tracks him down at the temple. And he utters a pretty sober warning. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now if you read what the commentators say about this, they say, well this indicates that there was probably some kind of sin in his life that led to the the infirmity that he was dealing with in the first place. We don't know what that was. We just know how long he had dealt with it. And by the way, do you realize that in all the miracles of healing that Jesus did, this was the only one where Jesus warns the one who was healed to stop sinning? Hmm. So, Again, I think it indicates that he was probably involved in some kind of sin that had at least been in, in part caused him to lie helpless for all those years. We don't know what kind of sin it was, but the lesson we need to hear is clear. Sin can cause that which can make us an invalid. And I'm not talking about physically alone, I'm talking about m- mentally and emotionally as well. Now, obviously, there are other reasons for incapacity that range anywhere from germs to genetics. We know that. But sometimes, our infirmity is caused by sin. And the Bible states this principle in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, where it says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, as in the one who thinks he can ignore what God says about right and wrong and do his own thing, from that nature will reap destruction, as in injury, hurt, damage, heartache, sorrow, and or maybe even death. 
The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life, as in peace, love, joy, good things that keep us whole. It's our choice, isn't it? In Max Lucado's book, He Still Moves Stones, he asks about this story and similar stories in the Gospels. He says, tell me, why are these stories in the Bible? Why are the Gospels full of such hopeless people? Though their situations vary, their conditions don't. They are trapped, rejected. They have nowhere to turn. On their lips, a desperate prayer. In their hearts, desolate dreams. And in their hands, a broken rope. But before their eyes, a never-say-die Galilean who majors in stepping in when everyone else steps out. Yea, God. Again, I ask, why are these stories in the Bible? Why did God leave us one tale after another of wounded lives being restored? So we could be grateful for the past? So we could look back with amazement at what Jesus did? No, no, a thousand times no. The purpose of these stories is not to tell us what Jesus did. Their purpose is is to tell us what Jesus does. I think we think in those terms sometimes. Well, Jesus did. But folks, Jesus still does. In Romans 15.4, the Apostle Paul wrote, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. That's what this story is about. These are not just children's stories, not romantic fables, not somewhere over the rainbow illusions. These are historic moments in which a real God met real pain so we could answer the question, where is God when I hurt? How does God react to dash hopes? Read the story of Jairus. How does the Father feel about those who are ill? Stand with him at the pool of Bethesda. What is God's word for the shameful? Watches his finger draws in the dirt of the Jerusalem courtyard. Remember the woman caught in adultery and brought to him? He's not just doing it for them, he's doing it for me. He's doing it for you. I know there used to be a stone in front of a tomb, and I do know it was moved. And I also know that there are stones in your path. Stones that trip and stones that trap. Stones that are too big. The reason these events are recorded in the Bible is not to help us look back at Jesus with amazement, but to move forward with faith. The God who spoke still speaks. The God who forgave still forgives. The God who came still comes into our world. He comes to move the stones we cannot move. Amen. Aren't you grateful? Folks, there is still healing power in the touch of Jesus for whatever is impacting your life. And he's reaching out to us. Do we want to get well? Do we want to get well? Pray with me. Father, I think we realize in the world we live in, 
in our own personal lives and circumstances, there are lots of things that can trap and paralyze us. And this story shows us that Jesus, you set people who are trapped and paralyzed free. And you heal them. And you make them whole. And you set them on a new course. Not just then, but now. I like what Max Lucado said. What's written there isn't just for our amazement. Well, look what Jesus did back then. But it's about what you still do in our world today, in lives today, in our church today. What you're willing to do right now for people in this place whose heads are bowed and who may be saying, you know what, Jesus, I feel trapped by this thing. I feel paralyzed by this thing. And I want your healing. Bonnie said it earlier in our service today, Jesus is our healer. And he's never quit being our healer. He still moves stones. The blood he shed on the cross has never lost its power. Jesus still does. And so in these next moments, I would encourage you, if there's something God has brought to your mind or something maybe you've been wrestling with, something that's held you down, a stone that you've not been able to move, that which has paralyzed, kept you hopeless, that which has trapped you in self-pity, that which you feel like was impossible to bring to Jesus who can do the impossible, but because he still does that. So I would ask you in these next moments, As Jesus says to you, do you want to be well? Don't give him an excuse. Don't blame it on someone else. But say, yes, Jesus, come and touch me. Here's where I hurt. This is what I need. I have a stone that's too big to move. Could you do that? I have a place in my life that needs healing. Would you do that? I'm I'm feeling hopeless. Would you bring me hope? I'm held down by this thing. Would you remove it? Whatever it may be, bring it to Jesus. The altar is open. If anyone would like to come and kneel here, God can meet you in your seat. But it's a place to come away. It's a place where others can gather around you. If any would like to come to the altar, please feel free to do that this morning.
Lord Jesus, we confess today that it's very easy to have the attitude this man by the pool of Bethesda had. Oh, if only my circumstances were different. Oh, if people hadn't treated me the way they treated me. And Father, a thousand other excuses that we can give. And my situation's like no other, and my situation's hopeless, and I guess I'm stuck here. And to realize this morning that those are lies that the enemy of our souls perpetrates on us, and that we unfortunately believe. Oh, but there's a Jesus who loves us, who can do the impossible, who can heal who can set us free, and he comes by today and he says, do you want to be well? Do you want to be well? If you do, pick up your mat and walk. I'm in charge. I can do what no one else can do. I can set you free. I can forgive your sin. I can heal your body. I can heal your brokenness. I can heal your hurt. Pick up your mat and walk. If any of you have prayed a prayer like that this morning, if you said to Jesus, here's the thing that's kept me paralyzed. Here's the thing that's trapped me but I want to be well. If any of you have prayed a prayer like that this morning, we just raise your hand quickly and put it back down. Thank you. Thanks very much. Wonderful. Thank you. Jesus, we thank you today that you were on the scene just like you were with that man at the pool of Bethesda. And you still do miracles. And you still come and confront us with those questions Do you want to be well? Do you want your life to be changed? Do you want to know forgiveness? Do you want to know life that's truly life? Then believe in me. Have faith in what I can do for you. Let's move on. Let's get up. Take up your mat and walk. And Jesus, thank you for the work that you've done in the hearts of these today. We give you praise because you are faithful and you still do these things. It's not what you have done, although that's important. And we learn lessons from those things. And we need to know that you've done those things. But what's what's critical for us today is to know that you still do those things. And thank you that you have done that in the hearts of many here today. Now we pray, Father, that you would walk with us as we go from this place. And even as we go, we know there's an enemy who will come and tell us, well, you know what? That was just an emotional moment. Nothing really happened. It's the same old thing. You're still going to be by the pool waiting for the waters to be moved. And by the way, it's not your fault. And by the way, it's not... It's, it's the circumstance that you have to live with. 
don't believe what happened happened because it didn't. Lord God, that's what the enemy will tell us. But strengthen our faith and help us to come to you and help us, Father, to, to believe in what you've done. And, and we pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit, just put that mark on our lives. That Help us to raise up those stones of remembrance like the people of Israel did so long ago. It, it, they may not be literal stones, but they're, they're, they're spiritual stones. And we can go back to that and say, Ah, there's what God did in my, my life on this day in church. Because when he said, take up your mat and walk, I did. I believed in his healing, life-changing power. And so we go from here today, Father, knowing we have met with you, we have been touched by you, we've been strengthened by you, we've been healed by you. And we give you praise and glory and honor and thanks and pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you, church, for being here today. Grace and peace and God's richest blessing upon you as you go this morning.